thinking sideways. I don't understand. Does not compute. You never know. What? Stories of things we simply don't know the answer to. Well, hey there, and welcome to Thinking Sideways, the podcast. As always, it's my turn, which means I am Steve. As always, it's your turn? As this time, it's my turn. Okay, yeah. As always, I'm always Steve. You are always Steve. Except that week I was Joe. Yeah, I remember Which that. was weird. It was really weird. I didn't like it very much. No. I don't, but... think, I don't think the fans liked it either. <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> Got a lot of hate mail over that one. <laughs> did. But I am Steve, as always, joined by... Devin and... Joe. Yes. And once again, we have another mystery to look into. Mm. Uh, this is a, a listener suggestion. Mm-hmm. We've been trying to work through the backlog. Which we, have a, we have a big one. Yeah, there's a lot. We have a lot of suggestions, which is great, but that list has gotten huge. This particular story that we're going to talk about was suggested by Todd quite a long time ago, so sorry that it took us a while, Todd. But Yeah, yeah. sorry, man. Hope you're still listening, Todd. Oh, I'm hope, sure he I hope is. Hope Todd and, didn't get angry that we'd never used his suggestion. <laughs> Stop listening to us. Well, it was a great suggestion, because what Todd suggested was that we look at Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah. Because it turns out there are a ton of theories on the interpretation of what the movie is all about. Yeah, it's surprising, actually, how many weird little uh, hidden meanings people seem to find in the movie. And I hadn't seen it in like 20 years. So I I remember uh, several years ago I watched, there's a documentary which is going to come up, so mm-hmm. we'll just talk about it now, Room 237. Oh, you saw that? Oh, yeah. I've I seen watched it, it several times now. Yeah. And But I remember watching it before and thinking, I don't remember any of this stuff. I've since watched The Shining about two and a half times in a week and a half. So at my house, The Shining is no longer allowed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I got into a lot of trouble for continually mm, watching that movie, and I know yeah. you weren't. Well, I I've ne- I had never seen it before um, because it may or may not shock our listeners to know that I hate horror movies. <laughs> like I I don't watch them at all. Um, in fact, if there's like even a remotely scary, tense soundtrack to something, I probably won't watch it. This goes back. To legitimately, I think I was a year and a half old. My mom tried to show me Bambi. She'd never seen it before. And it terrified you? Well, and, you know, the moms in her group said, oh, don't worry, the kids don't know that, spoiler alert, the the mom dies. (laughs) Uh No, the kids don't realize that. And, you know, the music kind of comes up and I stand up on the couch. I'm a year and a half old. I stand up on the couch as the music's just like, you know, and uh, Bambi gets out of the fire. And I just turn to my mom and I go, mama, where's his mama, mama? Mama, <laughs> mama, where's his mama? She mama, got shot. and my mom just t- j- like just gently took the remote and turned it off and said, "She comes back at the end. Let's go do something else." <laughs> and I think that that moment with the music is a very good representation of. I can't. And this one was so bad. I mean, I texted you about it. In the middle of it, I was like, do I really have to do this because... Yep, no, I think, uh, what is this movie about? Why are we watching it? And I just cleaned up what you, that message oh, said. That was super clean. Yeah. <laughs> there were, yeah. I did not... I was not not excited about watching it. Uh, yeah. It, I think it was the soundtrack. I think that if it had a different soundtrack, if it had wacky sax in it, well, I but but fine. see, that's the thing. That that's it's a very uh, it's it's totally Kubrick. That yeah. movie is absolutely Kubrick. And spoiler alert for everybody: if you haven't seen The Shining 
I know you were going to get around to it, and it's only like 35 years old. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about this movie in you depth. Wanna, you might want to go rent the movie first. You might want to pause the podcast yeah. and pause come this. back in a couple of hours when you finish The Shining. Yeah, yeah. it's a good movie. I know that. It's, Devin didn't like it. No, I no, no. I, I liked it. I just don't like movies like that. I And the thing is, is like I like all of the other Kubrick movies I've ever seen. So yeah. it yeah. was just this Well, horror. this one's kind of an outlier because he always wanted to yeah. do horror. So this mm-hmm. was a bit of an outlier for his catalog. Yeah. He uh, he actually has a... He did a little bit of everything. He, he really did. War did. movies and horror movies. I mean, uh, you've seen like... Uh, well, it's obviously Doctor Strangelove is a That's a one of my comedies. favorite movies of all times. You yeah. guys know that because I like I title all of the names of my scripts in that fashion. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I don't know yeah. if you guys have picked up on that. How I not, learned but... to how I learned to stop that and love mm, the bomb. Yeah, and all that stuff. yeah, <laughs> yeah. How I learned to stop worrying and love the Toynbee tiles. <laughs> yeah. or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then, uh, one of my faves is um, uh, Clockwork Orange. I like that one which too. Is, which is uh, another darkly humorous yeah. movie. It's really, it's really very funny, but it's it's in a very dark way. Yeah, he's he's a very un- he was a very unique director. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. very talented. Absolutely yeah. talented, but. Let's let's go ahead and kind of step into what we're going to talk about here. You want to talk more about how much I hate horror movies? Well, we could. No. We could do a whole episode on that. Let's That's, do that one I later. You, okay. might, you might turn our listeners off. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but no, what I was going to say when we were talking about all the theories mm-hmm. is some of these theories, you kind of got to stand on one leg, hold your mouth in just the right way, and then maybe see it. And some of them are based on the evidence they give you mm-hmm. are really really obvious yeah so, and i when i watched room 237 i was having a really hard time not doing that thing that people do sometimes where you sit in front of the tv and you're like yeah <laughs> that's true yeah that thing is the real thing oh no wait i know you said that contra- oh that contradicts it you know just accepting the facts as they were given and i yeah. know that we'll talk about that a little bit too. Yes, because you cannot do that. No. But are you two ready? You, you ready for movie time? Ready. Yep, let's do it. All right. Who's got the popcorn? Oh, I'll make some. Okay. Sweet. First bit of business. Let's talk about The Shining, not the movie, but the book. Yes. Yeah, by Stephen King. By Stephen King. It's a little different. It is. King yeah. wrote the book and it came out in 1977. And the baseline story is the same. And I'm going to give you a baseline version. It's not exact because they do diverge from each other so much. Yeah, well, essentially, they're, they're going to spend the winter in a It's the know, Torrance in family. The in a, in they a move hotel. to the Overlook Hotel. They're, it's in the mountains of Colorado. They're going to watch the hotel and maintain it over the course of the winter, and they're going to be snowed in. There's three main characters at that point. We've got the father, who is Jack, the mother, who is Wendy, and the son, who is five-year-old Danny. That's our main characters. Well, and Danny has uh, telepathy. He, yes. It turns out Danny can see things. He can shine. He yeah. can shine, as it is called. Yeah, so you can not only read minds, communicate tele- telepathically, but also can see things that happened in the past and in the future. Or are going to happen. And he has the... What's his name? His little well, in the Tony, movie, the he has ego. Tom... Tommy. Tommy. But that's in or Tony, Tony. Tony. Sorry, it's Tony. But that's only in the movie. Yeah. In, not the, in mo- the book. He has Tony but in not both. In the, oh, in the book, too. Oh, in the book, Tony is there. I didn't read but the book, sorry. You gotta okay, what Devin is doing, by the way, everybody, <laughs> is she is imitating Danny with the little the pointer finger up and down to talk. So right now my yeah, that's yeah, up and down conversation. Yeah. yeah. Nah. That is not present in the book. He talks to Tony in his head. 
So the, the, the finger thing is a way to, to visualize it for film. Yeah. To, you know, in, interior monologue is really hard to do it in is. movies. So what happens, of course, Danny sees things. Those things are affecting his father. His father goes nuts. He tries to kill the family. The father dies, and Wendy and Danny escape the Overlook. Yeah. That's the short version. That's a very evened out, because, again, they diverge yeah. so yeah, much. But the hotel is, like, haunted, I guess you could say. Yes, or, it's or a very hellish place. place. It's inhabited by a very evil, a, a very evil presence. I would say evil presence is the right way to go about it. Yeah. So like I said, King published the book in 77. Yeah. Uh, Kubrick got a hold of it, decided he wanted to make it into a movie. But, of course, he needed to make changes for it. Because as we just said, internal monologues don't work on film. Almost, well, you can no. do it if you're going to have the narrator. Yeah. But that's, but that's a bad format for a horror movie. <laughs> so. That's why, you know, a movie, a movie that was very faithful to the book was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And, and it really, re- it really sucked. It didn't work. It I mean, the, book was just, the book was hilarious, and the movie just sucked. Yeah, it didn't make it. Well, yeah. so Kubrick knows this, so he gets a hold of King, and he says, I want to make this into a movie, but I need to make changes. And King, being flattered that Stanley Kubrick is asking to turn his book into a movie, says, go ahead, change what you want, not realizing quite how much was going to get changed. Oh, yeah. yeah. Every, pretty much everything. King hates this movie. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely hates the movie. And and it's because of the fact that Kubrick went in and slashed so much out and then changed so many things that he had to change. Yeah. But yeah. It, it's, it's, it's really so, interesting. It came out to, to be, it turned out to be a good story, mm-hmm. a good movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're just not the same story. Not quite totally. the same not story. Not quite the same story. Yeah. Now, we're going to focus on the movie. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about the actors briefly here. Uh, we have four actors we're going to talk about. So Jack Torrance, the father, was played by Jack Nicholson. A very young Jack Nicholson. A very, yeah. <laughs> and yet already balding Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, yeah. Wicked uh, Widow Peaks. Yes. A, a warning to you people. I guess it's too late because you've already shut off the podcast and you're running the movie right now and streaming it on Netflix. But Jack Nicholson's hair is kind of wild in this movie. It this, is. This is a it's not on Netflix. No, it's not on Netflix. No, you can't stream it. I think Amazon oh. Prime is where I watched it. I don't remember This where. is sounding like an ad. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. Anywho, uh, our next character is going to be Wendy Torrance, the mother. She was played by Shelley Duvall. She's a great character. She's, yeah. Yep, we're going to leave it at that. <laughs> yes. We have the son, Danny, who is played by a five-year-old boy named Danny Lloyd. Who, fun fact didn't know that they were filming a horror movie and in fact didn't even see the movie or like find out anything about it until he was like 14 it's like nine years later his parents finally said yeah all right fine you can see this movie yeah he was 16 i think yeah apparently he was like horrified he had no idea they told him it was a drama did you watch the making of Mm -hmm. that's out there and one there's one guy i cannot remember his name but he was basically danny's handler he hung out with danny he did everything So as soon as the scene was done, hey, Danny, let's go do this. He'd grab his hand. He'd mm-hmm. run down the hall. Like, they were totally keeping him sh- sheltered, I well, would say. they do this with children, with child actors a lot. Um, there's this movie called The Fall, and one of the characters is a little girl who only speaks Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, they actually had to film all of her uh, scenes in sequence as she learned English, so her English would get better. And the um, one of the other characters is a paraplegic. He can't walk. 
And she literally thought that he was paralyzed until the premiere of the movie when she saw him walking down the carpet and she was horrified. I think they do that a lot with kids, right? Uh, well, well, I was just horrified. I'd be happy. Like, the realism right, walk, cool. right. I mean, not, I'm sorry, not like, ah, no, shocked. that's the worst. But she was, she was shocked. Yeah. 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 But, uh, uh, we have one oh, more sorry. character. I'm sorry. Oh, that yeah. was a tangent. Okay. No, no, on this tangent that we're on, just one last thing. I guess I need to go back and watch the movie again because I'm trying to remember... If they found a way to keep the kid out of the frames in the scenes when they're in the bathroom and, and Jack Nicholson is chopping the door down. He wasn't in the he bathroom wasn't in at that there. point. No. He was already escaped the bathroom. No, no. He started to. No. So he, was, had he already got. Oh, that's so, right. He was already out the was window. Already, he was already out. But then when, when Jack Nicholson is chopping at the door of the apartment, was he was he not? He, did, they, did they find a way to keep him out of those scenes? Yeah, too? The, the chopping only happens on the bathroom door. Your way ahead, sir. Mm. No, he, <laughs> no, no, no. He, he chopped. He, he chopped his way through the apartment door too, and then opened and then turned the doorknob. They, yeah, but they they have him in the bathroom at that point. And they do yeah. cuts. It's all cut scenes. Yeah. None of it's yeah. wide It's not like it was so, done sequentially. So they managed, yeah. to, they managed to actually keep him off the set for those. Yeah. While, that, while well, I don't know if he action. wasn't off of the set, I but I imagine probably... they had him somewhere else. Yeah. I imagine he was in the cafeteria. Anyway, sorry. There's yeah. another. We have one other act, actor that we need to talk about, and that is uh, the guy who played the character of Dick Halloran. And he was Scatman Crothers, and he he was a great. He was my he favorite was, actor. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did a good. phenomenal job. He was really good. So he was really interesting. But but those are our four characters. And that character does or does not exist in the book? As he well. does, he does. Yeah. Okay, he does. He does not experience the same fate in the book. Sure. That is a complete diversion okay. in the movie. And that's yeah. actually the one thing about um, about the movie that's very King esque. Very, very Stephen King like, is he has a way of, of having this, you know, because he, he comes all the way across country and comes in and immediately gets murdered just like that. Not, no chance to do much of anything. Yeah. But that's the kind of st- thing that Stephen King would do. And yeah. yes, in the it book, was, it yeah. didn't happen that wasn't that it. He was yeah. the hero in yeah. the book. But let's go ahead and move away from the story for a moment before okay. we, because uh, we've got, what is it? We got just a little bit more and then we're going to start talking about theories. The last thing I want to talk about is Stanley Kubrick himself. He, if you're not familiar with him, you need to go watch his movies. All of them. All of them, yeah. In succession. I wouldn't say that. I'm no. not a huge Kubrick fan, but I appreciate them. But I also, you guys, I know you remember this, Devin. A couple years ago, I went. I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey for the first and time. And you hated it. I hated it. I was like, you I don't get it. that movie. I you remember, had to explain it to me. Because we talked it with um, Toynbee Tiles. You know, we were talking about a Kubrick idea, Resurrect, yeah. on Dead on Planet Jupiter. And you were just like, I, I hate that thing. And I hate I, it. And now that I've done some research on it, I started to get it, but that's what that's the way Kubrick movies are. Oh, absolutely. He uh, he didn't believe in just giving it all up front. He would make you think about it. I well, you know what? I think that his style was so the best way I can describe it is that he intentionally wanted you to leave the theater thinking that you had missed some grander point. Because usually you had, Mm -hmm. right? But even if you hadn't even if it was kind of straightforward, and that's why there's all these theories about all these different movies, is that you always end his movies thinking you've missed some huge point. Even if there's not... It's just his way of show of yeah. giving you the story. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's just the way that he tells stories. I guess. I mean, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't leave the theater after I saw a Clockwork Orange, thinking I missed the point. But maybe I did. I don't know. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think for me, you know, as you read a little bit about him and you you start to actually kind of intellectualize about the movies, you realize like, 
oh, there's so much of this kind of ethos around him that there must have been some bigger message there. It wasn't just about this one thing. Even with, you know, Dr. Strangelove, mm-hmm. the more you start to watch his movies, the more you're like, wow, did I miss something? Did I, like, oh, was I'm... there some really poignant thing there that I totally missed? And I think that even, right, though, even if there wasn't something, because I don't think there always is, but that's the way I would describe it. No, I would yeah. say that's that's not a, that's an apt description. Description, absolutely. Yeah, and, and oh, one last thing uh, before we run off to, to watch his entire catalog. If you're not going to do that, uh, an- another one I would recommend is Paths of Glory with Kirk Douglas. Have you guys ever seen that one? No. No, I don't know that I've ever <laughs> seen yeah. that one. Yeah, that's no, a good movie. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's give the, a little bit of bio data here on mm-hmm, Stanley. Mm-hmm. Made his first movie in 1951, which was a, it was a really short documentary. He acquired funding for it himself. I mean, in 51, it cost a thousand bucks and he had to raise that cash on his own. His last movie was in 1999, Eyes Wide Shut. Which I believe, uh, didn't Spielberg finish that movie? You know, I I swear I saw something that said that he wasn't involved in that movie. Like an interview? Mm, yeah, I, I, I remember reading about it somewhere because apparently the movie wasn't completed, but maybe it wasn't Spielberg. It but... feels like this is the sort of thing that, like, who like Yeah, knows, it doesn't, right? it's not really relevant. It's kind of, a cool, it's yeah, kind of yeah. cool lore if it is, but mm-hmm. yeah. I don't think we'll probably ever confirm it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, th- I think we've talked, we've talked a lot. I mean, so far we told you about Stanley and the the last thing that I want to tell you is that including the the short documentaries or the short films he made in the beginning he did a total of 16 movies in 40 years which yeah, isn't that not many. a lot really no yeah. but but you also need to remember that his movies took anywhere from one to two years to complete after which point he was exhausted because he did everything yeah, yeah. he did all of he you know he's, he's involved in art direction in the cinematography in the soundtracks he did all of the editing he had con- full he was control. hand cutting it yeah. wasn't he yeah well yeah, yeah and he had he had it all sent to his home and he did all of the edits and then, and the thing about it is is uh he would take scenes over he would take many many takes we're we're gonna talk about this yeah, yeah. later and then the, let's like that, hold that's, that that's a lot of footage to go through bit. yeah it and, is yeah well i think that might be one of the shortest descriptions we've ever done on the show but we're done talking <laughs> about all those things we're gonna jump right into theories well it's not really theories is it theories and interpretations these or are, like, are just or just uh, not our theories, but theories that other people have. Oh yeah, no, well, yeah. most times theories aren't our theories, but yeah. but yeah, I guess yeah. Interpret. How, how would you describe it? Dan? I don't know. I guess theories about because it's not really like theories of how this thing happened, right? It's theories of what, what it the means. Me- yeah. So what meaning. The intention is. We'll meaning? call it meaning. And, okay. And also why perhaps Kubrick did it. There we go. Meanings and reasons. Yeah. This week on Thinking Sideways. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, we're going to start out with my favorite one. Yes. We're going to start out with the first meaning slash reason, which is the moon landing. Because it was faked. Of course it was. Let's talk about, well, no, no. These theorists aren't saying that it was faked. They're saying we made it to the moon. Just that we didn't make it to the moon at this particular moment, or the footage isn't right. Right. So let's yeah. Here, let me let me get this because okay. there's, there's actually more, some It's more than that, right? It's more than just saying, "Oh, we didn't make it to the moon, and we did it on a soundstage." Because they're not saying we didn't make it to the moon. They're yeah. saying that the footage that was sent 
of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin mm-hmm. hopping around on the moon for 20 some odd minutes was fake. Was fake. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what it says. Yeah. I oh. do. I think and, it's important to clarify yes. that though. Yeah. For no, that, that is a good point. But right. why, why was it faked if we made it to the moon? Because we have, let, let me get we'll, into we'll, yeah. this the first okay, and the, then the we'll cover that at home. the end. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You are you are just yeah. <laughs> raring for the end of everyone tonight. Wow. All right. According to this, Kubrick was the one who did all of the filming of the astronauts on the moon. He directed it. He directed it. Yeah. And he then had remorse over it. And so he's explaining that through things in the movie The Shining. Officially, according to history... The United States landed on the moon in a manned mission in 1969. That's when we talked about Buzz Aldrin and uh, Neil Armstrong. Suddenly lost that name. (laughs) Uh, You would think I'm the one who's been working crazy hours. Uh, But in 1968, which was the year before that happened, Kubrick released 2001 A Space Odyssey. And that had some really elaborate space scenes in it. Yeah. Yeah, On the moon and and guys Mm -hmm. floating around in space. And that was all done with a technique that is called front projection. Yeah. The simple version of what front projection is, is you have your actors. They're standing in front of a camera. You have some kind of plane behind them so that the ground doesn't just continue to go flat. Something rises up. It is that they are physically on, right? Right. Yeah. Behind that is a reflective surface, which I'm just going to call a mirror because it basically is a mirror. But that mirror is big and turned at an angle. And from the side, another camera is projecting something on it. It's... So like, that they look like they're in front of what's being projected, whether it's still or motion film. Right. So it's like pre-good green screen. Absolutely. There was technology at the time where you could fake the backgrounds, but it was really it bad. bad. Oh, yeah. Uh, my favorite, I always think of that old 60s movie, Sinbad and the Seven Seas. Oh, yeah. Where the guy is, you know, the mm-hmm. the genie is is going around. And you can tell that they're, they're showing it on a movie screen from the other side. Yeah. So, He didn't want that because it looked like crap. Yeah. So he used this technique. And therefore what? And therefore it was very realistic. And there's there's a very easy scene in 2001 that I think shows this where I think it's three people are standing on the lunar surface and they're on a bit of a ridge. And I even noticed. Yeah. That part of the, the bottom of the scene was taken up by lunar rock and it seemed odd to me. But that's a very easy example of how it worked. So what they are then saying is that this is how he made the footage that we all saw or that everyone saw in 1969. And in, in fairness, when you watch 2001 A Space Odyssey or you look at the pictures of them on, on the quote-unquote moon, it looks really good for it that does. time. It actually looks yeah. pretty dang good for this time. It does. With um, our CGI, CGI technology. Yeah, you know, I mean, except for uh, the footage of, like, you know, of spaceships, and, I, and I, I'm, right. I'm omitting the Discovery. The Discovery was a huge model that they filmed on soundstage. Yeah. And that, that, 
But you see this, you see like early on, you see a satellite going around the earth, mm-hmm. and it, it looks like they drew it on cardboard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, but that, I that's think, the only thing about the movie that doesn't look great today. Right, but it I think holds up really in well. support of this theory, right, you look at the images of, of these actors on a soundstage with this front projection on the quote unquote moon, it looks real good and if you think about front projection and then i went back and and watched some of the footage Mm -hmm. of the 1969 landing the camera the lunar surface takes up about half of the left frame and then slopes so that it's taking up about a quarter of the right hand side of the frame so that is of course for this more ammunition to prove that it was fake this way. And it's way. grainy. You know, it's, it's not very HD. Grainy. You know, I think there are some points to be made about this, whether or not I totally believe it. Yeah. Well, and and we're going to move away from front screen or front projection. Mm-hmm. I keep wanting to call it front screen for some reason, but know, it's yeah. not. No. We're now going to move to the Overlook Hotel in The Shining, and we're going to go to the second floor. You, if you've seen the movie, you know this because it's the red, yellow, or red and orange and brown hexagonal carpet. Yeah. And this is, this is towards why, right? This is evidence of him telling the story. Yes. It's saying that he used that carpet as a way to make a very obvious clue. That he had faked the moon landing. Yes. We're no longer on the... This is how he faked the moon landing. Correct. Not okay. how, but this is his way of telling. That's, that's okay. And, and uh, exactly how does that reveal that he if you that? If you look at launch pads at Cape Canaveral, mm-hmm. Cape Canaveral, Canaveral, suddenly can't say that word Canaveral. either. Canaveral. Canaveral. <laughs> yeah. Putting the R in a weird place, Steve. It's, it's fine. It's like when I said cavalry yeah. instead of cavalry. Mm-hmm. Both exactly. of those are wrong. Wrong. Well, yeah, there's there's the the, the Cape the, the Cape Canaveral pattern. Mm-hmm. But so these, but they're I, saying that because those those launch pads are in hex shapes, but they're not perfect hexes because of the land around them. You can see, the, and I've seen uh, images superimposed when the camera's at just the right angle, so the perspective is stretching things out. Almost a perfect match mm-hmm. to a couple of those launch pads. So he, uh, Kubrick, then had that carpet made. Uh, I You'd think he would have gone and bought a roll of carpet and, you know, for the <laughs> That's set. why he chose the carpet. You would oh, think I that. See. I, I don't know. But this is the same scene where something else a little suspicious happens, right? Like he, the. This is the scene where Danny happens to be wearing that sweater? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's the other clue in here is that Danny is wearing the Apollo 11 sweater. So I think it's part of it is that these things coincide mm-hmm. that makes people suspicious, right? It's yeah. not just because you can kind of make the hexagonal thing fit. It's also because Danny happens to be wearing an Apollo 11 sweater. Mm-hmm. It is another key piece am in I, it. Am I jumping? No, okay. no, no. It's, it's absolutely uh, an important uh, important thing there. Uh, I think this is what you guys were, or Joe was kind of getting into a little bit, which is why would this footage, the the lunar landing Mm -hmm. footage. We have been jumping around. Yeah, a little bit in this theory. But why did the the footage get faked? Mm -hmm. There was a space race. Mm -hmm. We had to get to the moon. And of course, the Russians were wanting to get to the moon. So according to this, we couldn't get there. We couldn't get there first. So we faked it. That's why it happened, so that we could have supremacy in that that manner. Even if it wasn't real, they would think it was real, How? so we would win. 
and history would remember us as being there first. Okay, and then uh, so so are, are they saying that eventually one of the Apollo missions? Eventually, actually, we got we got men on the moon. Yes. What, what which Apollo mission was it? They don't say. Conveniently. Yeah, that is handy. Yeah, the in and in, in the readings for this particular theory, you'll also come across some stuff that talks about a strange light in the night sky that shouldn't be there according to the stars. Uh, and there's a million reasons why that is, but the theory says that there was a random light on in the studio that that mirror picked up. Oh, it's interesting. That's not what I what what I had read about it. It was that it was the light of the projector. That's where the projector was like pinhole hitting. Oh, that's what I read. Oh no! See, what am I talking totally about? Was different. some some light was left mm-hmm. on? Was yeah. what I got. But. Yeah. That. I mean, either way, it's it's that's government for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Yeah, just bungling it again. Um. So that, now there's there's other ways that, according to this, Kubrick tells us that it is the lunar landing, and he's sorry. That is when Dick Halloran takes Wendy and Danny into the pantry. There's Tang cans on the wall, which, of course, the astronauts drank Tang. So did everybody else. Though. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. That's, I, that's... I, I know. had Tang in my earthquake kit when I was a kid, and that was in the 90s. Like, come on, guys. <laughs> the other clue, another clue we have is that room, the room where the spirits are, where the, the, the scary naked old lady is at, is room 237. Yeah. The moon, even figures, 237,000 miles away from the Earth. The, mm-hmm. the other one yeah. that they had in that one, right, was the, the key. Are you going to talk about that? No, I hadn't. I wasn't going to go to it. on the key. Have at it. Because I, I really, this one was so dumb to me. I didn't it's super dumb. It. Yeah. But I like to talk about dumb things. <laughs> it's that the, the key has a little tag on it, right, to label what room it is for. And it says room, no, like number. N-O. And then, yeah. But N-O. And it's uh, a, a capital N and a tiny little O. So people say, well, you can only have it say room, or if you add the N, it can be moon. If you replace, yeah, if you yeah. switch it around. So obviously, Kubrick was trying to say that it was the moon room, and everything was fake in there, and that that's he was he faked it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's mm. exactly it. Yeah. So smart. Okay, so there's the last thing. I, I'm actually I'm jumping ahead. Um, yeah, you're forgetting about the twins. I am. Gemini. The Grady girls. Yeah, the Grady girls. Okay, you hear them referred to as the twins because the girls who played the characters of the girls in the blue dress are twins. Fraternal. And super creepy. Super creepy. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I've seen them as adults and they still look really They didn't look like, that much alike to I, me Yeah, I got kids. that too. Yeah. But people point out the fact that Ullman, the the manager of the Overlook Hotel, mm-hmm. says that they were the Grady girls about eight and ten years old, oh. and in the book they're not twins. Good point. Yeah. So people say, well, obviously this is a reference to the Gemini space program right. as you were heading to. Because he's using twins and mm-hmm. when they didn't need to be twins. And, uh, you know, we've talked... We should have used triplets, so. <laughs> <laughs> but Gemini was the space program that was in effect before we started sending men to the moon. That's when we were doing all of our research. The it was, orbital missions? Yeah, yeah, it was two astronauts in a capsule, yeah, two basically. two astronauts in a capsule. Actually, they did some interesting stuff, and it was all lead 
you know, research and techniques leading up to the success of Apollo. Two astronauts get into a pop can, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> no, but actually, the, the Gemini missions, we did our, our first spacewalk from a Gemini capsule, and then uh, there was one cool mission where they launched, they launched one capsule, and then a couple of days later, they launched a second one, and they actually rendezvoused in orbit and connected up and stuff. And so all kinds of really kind of cool stuff. Yeah. And it was important to the, to the Apollo mission later. But it, but it, according to this theory, the girls yeah. are the direct link yeah, to, to, to Gemini. Gemini. They yeah. were the predecessor. I mean, I get it, right? They were the predecessor to Danny. They were the last well, kids uh, okay. that lived there. But they were the Gemini. And, well, no, because you, you can't do that. Because I say, well, then the Torrance family is three, which would then, would then be would a be reference Apollo. to Apollo. Yeah. But that, that takes away... The caretaker Grady and his wife who were already there. So that doesn't actually work. But But you could spin the theory that way. But Danny was what's Tony, Tony. and also could shine to what was his name? Dick Halloran. Yeah. So he was three. Uh huh. No, there you go. Maybe. Maybe. Well, let's. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this okay. is how this that's is going to go. Too, let's not take this theory too far. No, no. Frankly, well, here's, I think it's here's the last weak. thing that I found everywhere about this, which is in the Colorado room, we see Jack on his typewriter. Wendy comes in and interrupts him, and he pitches a fit and chews her out about his responsibilities and his work. The, 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 all the proponents of this say, well, that's a word-for-word -word representation of a conversation that Stanley had with his wife about his regrets and the money for doing the moon landing footage. The problem is, that is outright wrong. Because, thank you, New York Times, their, their stuff is archived and on the net, and there is an interview with Jack Nicholson talking about the fact that he and Kubrick had initially looked at the scene, he had talked to him about the fact how it reminded him of what had happened with him and his then ex-wife just before and then during their divorce. Kubrick or Nicholson? Uh... Nicholson's. Nicholson's. Okay, sorry. No, Nicholson's yeah. divorce. Uh, sorry, they both were married several times. Right. I had to think which one we were at at that point. <laughs> but uh, but then, so they wrote the scene together, mm. which means that it couldn't be a direct representation of a conversation that Stanley had with his wife. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, we've shot this one full of holes. Besides, it's kind of a colander at this who, point. Who had a listening device planted in their apartment anyway? <laughs> no, that it would have been that Kubrick wrote it, yeah. right? But I, that's bonk. There is. Oh, and one, one other, one other uh, fork to stick in this thing <laughs> is that the Hulk reference uh, to room, uh, room 30, 237 uh, representing the 237,000 mile distance between the Earth and the Moon is the the room number was not actually 237 to begin with. It was 217. In the book. And they're thinking that they he, they changed it to 237. The reason they did that is when they filmed the exteriors at Timberline Lodge up on Mount Hood, the lodge asked them to use a different room number and not room 217 because they were afraid that people would be afraid to stay in room 217. But Joe, the they don't actually have a 217. No, they do. Sorry. <laughs> I've I've heard it said about this. They're like, but if you call Timberline Lodge, they do they don't have a room number two seventeen. I've been there, no. as have you, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. You know they have a room two seventeen. Oh yeah, they do. And Your actually, story it's their, is correct. It's their, it's their most popular room. They yeah. don't have a room two thirty seven. No. Yeah. So yeah. I, what you're saying is right, but I just wanted to bring up <laughs> that that's a thing that people say. People do push that. Yeah. 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 
Shall so. we move on to the next uh, one? Yeah, yeah. Let's move on to the next silly theory. Yeah, wow, we beat that one. Jeez. Poor horse. Um, okay. Let's talk more about horses. N- well, a little bit. Not really. We're going to go to our next one, which is that this was all about the massacre of the American Indians. Here's how it goes. When the Torrances first get to the hotel and Stuart Ullman is showing them around, he's the manager. He takes tells them that the hotel is built on an Indian burial ground and that during construction they had to fight off Indians. So there's probably some buried there. And then as you see the the scenes as they're panning around the hotel, and if you watch, there's a lot of Native American artwork, and there are photos that there's at least one very prominent one that is a man, it's just a, a headshot of a man in a headdress. Then we talked about, yeah, the the artwork, which is going to be the tapestry in the Colorado room, which is a huge tapestry, mm. giant thing. So again, there's... But this this... This movie has a lot of giant things in it. A lot of a lot of huge rooms in this movie. Huge rooms, the huge rugs. All the rugs are themed. They're kind of a Native American themes. Some of the the floors have uh, inlays that are the Native American themes. So it's everywhere. But they are saying that that's because he's trying to tell us that this is about the American Indians. But were there any pictures of dead Indians? No. But there were, besides that, there is, we're going to talk about the pantry a number of times, and we're going to go back to the pantry right now, because when Dick Halloran shows Wendy and Danny the pantry, there are cans, again, big cans, or big Calumet baking uh, soda cans. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not surprising they're there. Because it's part of the, that was a major brand at the time, and it's stockpiling a giant hotel that feeds gads of people. Yeah. But that can, part of it is, it's a bright red can, and it's got a reverse image of a face with a headdress on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, So it's it's a Calumet American Indian. Yeah. Yeah, I think that stuff is still sold, right? It is. It's, we. It's, I have it in my cabinet. Really, yeah, okay. it's very familiar. It absolutely is. I was yeah. like, I have crap, I don't bake, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we have like four cans of it at our house, okay. so yeah. Uh, but, you know, so w- there's that time when the cans show up, and they're all nice and neat and orderly and all facing forward, and then we're going to flip ahead to when Wendy locks Jack in the pantry after she clubs him in the head with a baseball bat. Spoilers! Yeah. Well, I told you we were we going to be full them. of them. Ugh! It's a good thing you watched this. Yeah. Uh, Well, at that time, when Jack is leaning against the door, talking to Wendy, trying to open it, uh, you can see all of these cans on the edge of the shelf, except they're now no longer square. They're slightly turned. You can't see everything. So what this says is that that is representative of the way we the American government came to the American Indians and said, we're going to make all these treaties and we're going to be very honest up front with you which is why all the cans are facing forward at first and then we changed our mind the american government changes their minds they do all these things and they basically break all their promises which is why the cans are turned to represent that breaking of the promise Uh, i see yeah I, I I don't know that I really go in I, that that doesn't make sense how the twist of a prop, but I have yeah, seen photos but... of of Stanley there very specifically adjusting the cans. Could have been for lighting reasons or too much detail or not enough. I don't I, know. You know, 
Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that I, uh, I think that uh, Stanley, if nothing else, was really good at setting the mood. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's been a lot of talk about his really great ability in The Shining to create this sense of disjointed reality. Yes. And I, I, I personally, just coming from a theater background and having experience in set dressing and things like that, understand that you're supposed to feel uncomfortable in a very regimented way in the beginning, and then things start to fall apart, and they get crazier and crazier, and that that's a great way to make people unconsciously realize it. The fact that people have taken it and analyzed it and all that, that's... It's maybe reading a little too deep in something that he was just trying to make people feel subconsciously. Mm -hmm. That would be, that's my general reading of that whole thing. You know, that he's, it is, it's supposed to feel like everything's falling apart. So of course he's going to adjust it and it's not, I don't know. Yeah, I think that. It's uh, not linear. I guess, yeah. Yeah, I think if Kubrick had really wanted to make a movie about the massacre of the Indians and the, the white man's broken promises, he probably would, would have just made a Western. <laughs> he would have of... made an actual movie about it, <laughs> Yeah, right? he would have, yeah. I think. Yeah, and, and it's kind of sad that he died as young as he did, and he didn't have a chance to make a Western. It's true, he didn't, did yeah, he? Yeah, he never made a Western. Huh. Yeah. Weird. Well, let's uh, let's keep going with the the more of the metaphors that we're going to find in this. Oh, there's more Indian stuff. In oh, there? there's there's more. So the the next one that we've got is the fact that in the very end sequence, the camera zooms in to the framed photos on the wall, and then the very center one shows Jack Nicholson there. Underneath it, it says Overlook Hotel, July Fourth uh, of July, nineteen twenty one. Fourth of July to most Americans is a celebration of independence, but according to this metaphor, it's emphasizing the fact that that's not necessarily the case for the American Indians because we screwed them a whole bunch and they don't have what they used to have. You know, I, uh, I, I this is in, again incredibly weak because I mean, seeing that seeing that like the, the date July Fourth doesn't make me think of the of the Indians because the Indians. This is not really their celebration of, of Independence Day. I mean, would you ever, would looking at July Fourth, ever make you think Indians? No, but no. you know, again, I'm not part of that culture, so I, of course, it wouldn't. And, mm. You know, I'm a normal white guy in middle class America, so that's I'm gonna know it as that thing that it is meant to represent to our class. That's that's where this metaphor is going. I, I, I I'm on board with you. Mm. I think that it is a I think it's hell of a leap. It's, it's a big old stretch. It's a, it's yeah, a it big stretch. It's and like a the, Mr. Incredible stretch. Yeah, it mm-hmm. is. And by, and by the way, just as an aside, that particular shot is really cool. It's a really cool shot. Just, oh, when it, it zooms in it, and it the zolly. It the just zolly. slowly, slowly moves forward and closes in on these nine pictures on the wall. And then it closes in on the middle picture. And then it closes in further and further and further until you it's can a great see shot. Jack Nicholson standing there well, partying. It's, it's, very, uh, it, it's very indicative of his style where it's just so slow but mm-hmm. it's very directed in some instances and then others you don't really know what he was going after yeah. and he was doing it on purpose uh we have uh, a couple bits more here so we have the death of dick halloran 
So we know that Dick gets to the Overlook Hotel. He comes in. Jack pops out from around the side of a column and hits him in the heart with an axe. Uh huh. Drops, Drops him, him to the floor mm-hmm. and he dies. I think Calloran should have brought a gun with him. Yeah, mm. probably. He knew what was going on. Yeah. Well, of course, when we see him next, he is laid splayed out and bleeding. And according to a lot of the reading on this, he is laying on a rug that has an American Indian design. Well, I'm going to point out, he's not laying on a rug. He's actually laying on the floor. It's the the linoleum tile floor. I guess it would be linoleum. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Yeah. It's not tile. It's inlaid, so it's got to be linoleum. Mm -hmm. Regardless, he's laying on a shiny floor, Mm -hmm. bleeding on it. Now, I will admit, it's got some inlays that could be, you know, interpreted, but mostly they're just kind of half chevrons in in the corners. So I mean, I think it's okay. it's fair to say that almost every other scene of The Shining either takes place in a kitchen, which is clearly tiled slash linoleumed, or very carpeted. Mm-hmm. So okay, fine. Yeah, there's something weird happening there. Is it explainable by not wanting to stain a set carpet with fake blood? Sure. <laughs> there you go. Why not? I mean, it's, I feel like that's stretching even less than this explanation. Oh, well, I've got one more stretch for you. Ooh. And that's the elevator. What? We're going to go back to the beginning of this one when I talk oh, about yeah. Ullman saying it was a burial ground. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you think about the way an elevator is constructed... The first floor is not where it ends. Its shaft and its machinery are farther down and below. Mm-hmm. Some of it, at least. Oh, the hotel had a basement. That's where they had their boilers or their right. So, system. But they're saying there's a shaft going down, and that's burrowing into that Indian burial ground, which is why we have the blood scene, where all the blood comes pouring out of the elevator. It's like a Splash Mountain ad if Splash Mountain was covered in blood and gore. But it's just, it's, it flows everywhere and it's insane. And they're saying that's the release of the spirits of all of these Indians. Mm-hmm. Cause this thing is plunging into their heart and, mm-hmm. yeah, totally and it's releasing them. Boo. Boo. Yeah. No, no, it, none of it. None of it. I mean, <laughs> that's melodramatic. I know. <laughs> the, yeah. The, uh, the, the, the fact that the hotel was built on an Indian burial ground. I mean, Stephen King actually used that particular plot device in numerous books of his. Uh, you know, there was like in Pet Cemetery, wasn't there? Like the the Micmac Indian burial ground where all the evil mojo came from that reanimated the pets. You know, it's or been so long thing. since I've seen that movie, I don't even remember. Yeah. But also, this is America. What isn't built on an Indian burial ground? Very true. Yeah. There's Let's probably there's probably white people too buried under my house. What? I mean, there's probably I, well, no, there's more likely Indians, but I mean, there's probably Both. a lot of dead white people. Yeah. Um, everywhere you know, there's dead people the everywhere regardless of nationality and yeah, yeah, they're yeah. all over the place oh yeah the uh i guess this is what the third one we've only oh made the third one well, yes okay well wow we're gonna have to start talking fast yeah as job says talking really fast yes let's talk okay really... this one <laughs> yeah. this one says that it's about the Holocaust. <gasps> yes, yeah, another one I found rather tendentious. I'm sorry, we're hitting that point in the theories where I'm just going to start saying no. <laughs> All right, well, yeah. before you start shouting no, let me explain this. I said saying, not shouting. Oh, okay. Well, before you start saying no, Devin, okay. let me let me go through it. The The first part of this is that it's all based on Nazi symbolism. The Nazis, of course, love the eagle. They had that on a bunch of their stuff. Yeah, they did. It's on their paraphernalia. Yeah, man. 
Our first item that is a Holocaust representation is Jack's Adler typewriter. And nothing says Holocaust more than a typewriter. Well, it's a German <laughs> brand. Well. And it's got a giant eagle spread across the front. That does it, then. Um, it doesn't actually explain why the typewriter changes color midway through the film, but oh my. we'll leave that. It goes from kind of a white cream color to a light blue, but I almost wonder if that's a lighting issue. Oh, it must but, be. But it, it changes color. But There's it's, no way they had two typewriters. I mean, no, it just seems really... Well, I don't know. Maybe. Um, but there's uh, also the fact that the name Adler... Translated from German to English is eagle. Mm-hmm. It is. I even tested that out because I was. I, I did too. Yeah, I, I really did it three times to make sure Google wasn't messing with me. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's see what else. Oh, there's more symbolism. There is one of the early scenes where Jack is in bed and he wakes up. And he's being filmed in the mirror. Wendy brings him breakfast. He wakes up at like eleven o'clock in the I morning. I love that scene, but for something else, yeah. Well, if you look. He's wearing a shirt that says Stovington, and it's got the eagle on it. They're saying the eagle is another representation, uh, a Nazi symbolism. So pretty much they're saying that it's Nazis because eagles. Not That's part of it. Because eagles. Do you want to point out, it's one of the few times I saw Kubrick really hold to something in the script, which is, or in the book. Mm. The name of that school is the school that Jack used to work at. Because if you remember in the beginning, he said yeah. he used to be a school teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the name of the school he worked at. But back to the Holocaust. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> this, this one, uh, what is the phrase you used earlier? A bit of a stretch? Mm-hmm. This one's a bit of a stretch. Mm-hmm. It's saying that the music that was used... In the film, all of those composers were post-World War II composers and that they were all influenced by the war. No. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. No. Yeah. There's just no. Okay. Just, there just ain't nothing there. The last thing that they do is math. If you take... <laughs> I love this. Because <laughs> even, even the people who are proponents of this theory say... I know it's a bit of a stretch, but... Uh, more than a bit. If you multiply 2 times 3 times 7, you get... 42. Which? Is representative of 1942 when the Germans really took their uh, their plans against the Jews and really ramped it up and started... All of the atrocities. Come on, you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. But, but, but in order to accomplish this, what Kubrick had to do was he had to, to bribe the people at Timberline Lodge or to, it was to a convenience. ask him. To or, ask him. or it was a convenience. But, yeah. but that's not the only place they're saying it's at. There are 42 vehicles in the parking lot. When did, we did first you, see the parking lot. Did you check that? I did I not. I did not count them because I, it is so hard. In that movie, they do actually count it. Oh, do they? They as they do the flyover. Oh, that's right. They, they do have a graphic do. in the docu- room two thirty seven. But also, you guys, seriously, like uh-huh. seriously. Danny's wearing a short shirt that has the number forty two on it. Uh-huh. There is the number forty two in the the license plate of Dick Halloran's rental car. And do you remember when Wendy and Danny are watching TV and before Danny goes upstairs to get something out of their room, but they're watching a a show and it turns out it's the summer of 42. Also, funny side note, there's no No. plug on that television. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. There's no cord. I'm sorry. I just like for... Oh, yeah, I know. 42, 42, 42. You know what else is 42? Is the answer to life in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. 
<laughs> if we're going there, we're going there. Right? That's right. Good I point. mean, it's, it's so the you're Hitchhiker's saying, Guide came out. When did that come out? Uh, you know, I don't remember. That would have been the 70s sometime. It would have been before the movie, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I don't know. Was it? In, they filmed this movie in what, 1978, 9? Uh, I believe it was seventy, late 78, finished up in late 79. It came out in 80. Mm. I believe is how, how yeah, it came out in 1980. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how old Kubrick was. Maybe he was 42. Uh, I mean, it could have been his 42nd birthday present to himself. Uh, yeah. It could, could have been. been. Let's see. Okay. According to Wikipedia, uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy came out in 1979. Oh, so it would have come out at the same time as filming. I'm just ah. saying. If we're going there, we're going there. Okay. 42, well, meaning of life. Well, um, you want to go somewhere else? I yes. just, I, actually, one thing about the Holocaust that this, that this movie is a little reminiscent of is that um, at, at the time, you know, leading, at the time leading up to in, in the early days of World War II, Europe's Jews were desperate to get out. And, of course, they, they found the exits closed to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they, I mean, seriously, you know, if you're the Nazis and you, you hate the Jews and the Jews are perfectly happy to leave, you know, why not just let, let them leave? Instead, they closed off the exits. Yeah. Which is what Jack Nicholson did in the movie. But because I guess... He sabotaged the radio and he sabotaged the snowcat. In the same way, though, that we said... If Kubrick wanted to make a movie about the Holocaust, the Holocaust, he would have made Schindler's List. He right. wanted yeah. to, yeah. He, he wanted to make a movie about the Holocaust, and he did. Which movie? According was that? to this, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> no. uh, I mean, uh, yeah, he was going to make one, and then Schindler's List came out, and he was actually relieved because he could never get. It was going to be called the Aryan Papers. Yeah, but he could. He never could quite get it together to have to make that movie and then was relieved when he didn't have to do it right so, so he would have done that he was trying to do that for years so why is it shoehorned in here i don't know i mean no. but I, I guess my my feeling is right is that okay schindler's list came out like fine so you wait for your next movie right because it, if he wanted to make a western he would have made a western if he wanted to make something about the you know the slaughter of the american indians he would have made that western if yeah. he wanted to make a movie about the holocaust he would have done it yeah. regardless of what was out at the time he uh, according to the next one he also made this movie about the minotaur yeah oh my yeah. God, this I is hate another this. absurd one okay this I'm, one i hate more than any of I'm them i'm going to make this really brief cuz it is really simple and then i'm going to blow it out of the water a little bit thank for you, you. So, if you don't know what the Minotaur is, he is from Greek mythology, and it's the body of a man with the head of a bull and a really bad attitude, and has a penchant for living in mazes. The Shining is about the Minotaur because we have the hedge maze, even though in the book it's actually hedge animals that are down by the playground. Yeah, yeah that's that's what, a change. To- topiary. Yeah, the topiary. Yeah. Is it topiary or topiatry? I never know. Topiary. Is topiary. It topiary or topiary. Okay. Ah. Um <laughs> uh, but the fact that uh, like you were talking about earlier Devin how things are so disjointed when you move around in that hotel in the movie. Yeah. That's because it's supposed to be maze like, so that's another representation of the maze. We have Jack Nicholson. There are quite a few times where he's looking at the camera. He's kind of got his head tipped forward. He's got that uh, that kind of blank look or almost semi-angry look. But and the stupid widow's peak. And, and his widow's peak. Almost like the same stance or the head 
angle that you see on a bull that is about to charge. So again, that's a reference to it. The last one that I really love, which is the representation of it, is in the beginning of the movie when they go to the hotel, Danny is in the game room. And then he meets the Grady girls, the Grady twins. When the girls are there on the left-hand side on the wall, there is a poster that says Monarch. And then it's got this strange-looking blacked-out figure with light coming from behind it that they say is supposed to be a representation of the Minotaur. But it's actually got curved legs, more like a goat, which would make me think it should be a satyr. You know what? A... Actually, though, because uh, this is, you're talking about, they talked about this in uh, that movie room uh, two. That's that's one of the places I found it, yeah. Um, as they were describing it, I was like, I, I don't see it. It's a skier. It's a skier. It's a skier. And then uh-huh. at one moment it was like, oh my god, it's a man. <laughs> I see it! With the hood, like, pointed in the opposite direction, the way that a uh-huh. human's knees would be. I, I see it. It was like that dress, the, like, is it black or blue or gold yeah. or white? It was. <laughs> it was, like, the moment that I saw it, I can't, like, I can't unsee it. Uh, that's all I see now is a minotaur. So I, I guess... Well, and, and they also, they take it farther by saying, on the opposite wall... There is a uh, it's a piece of art that is a, a guy on a bucking bronco. So that's the combination of man and beast. Mm-hmm. So it's another another metaphor for it. I guess. But, uh, oh, go ahead. For me, uh, see as I might these kind of imagery things, I still don't understand why he would be making a movie about a minute. I don't either. Yeah, I know. That's that's like, this it's is, some that's weird the, subtext. It's dumb. Yeah, this is this is by far the lamest. Of the I'm theories, sorry. Which, well, which have all sorry been pretty to lame, say. And here's the problem. Here's the problem with this. That's actually a minotaur because we I, we all know it's a skier. But even if it is a minotaur, why? But if you pause the movie and you start reading the poster, it doesn't say monarch. It says ski monarch, as in the monarch recreational ski area, yeah. because that is a real place and it's been existence since like the 30s or something. It's a local area prop. Although what they talk about. In that movie, in the the room two, three, seven, whatever, I think it it is a little bit fair, just given that there is a very explicit discussion between the characters about the fact that the hotel resort should be a ski resort. Yeah, that it should be in there. Like, well, no, it's just no, no. It's too hard to keep the roads open. Right, but uh, I so I get that. Right, that their reasoning behind well, it's not a ski resort, but then they have this advertisement for skiing. Okay, fine, but also why? Yeah, like why? Absolutely why? But also, the, the the Minotaur lived in a maze. True. Nicholson didn't live in the maze. He died in the maze. Well, but he was living in the maze but at he the lived, time. He lived in the maze until somebody broke the maze, right? Somebody broke the maze? I mean, Danny, Danny essentially broke Danny the is, maze. Yeah, Halloran and Danny would have broken the maze by bringing someone up there in the winter. That's a, that's a great point. I hadn't, I hadn't made that connection. But it's still dumb. Okay. Absolutely dumb. Well, let's, let's keep sticking with that particular poster as we go to the next in line, which is that this whole movie was about the CIA's mind control program. Uh-huh, of course. As is everything. Yes. Well, yeah. evidently, Monarch is a reference to the the program uh, it's MK Ultra, which yeah. was a program for like 20 or 30 years where the CIA gave people loads of drugs. Sometimes they knew it, sometimes they didn't, 
it, to try and figure out a really good way to get people to confess. Basically, a truth drug. Sure. Yeah. Also, the the super villain in uh, the Venture Brothers. Oh, the, is it the, the, monarch. the monarch? Yeah. Yeah, monarch. I thought was the successor to MK Ultra, though, right? Uh, that I'm not positive of. Yeah. I mean, I just did this. I, I looked at this and I went through some of it, and it just. It's such a it stretch. Fun. I mean, they're saying that it's basically you're on LSD and that's why this place is so crazy. And it's a representation of you being broken down by the man who's questioning you. So that's why Jack is breaking down under the the weight of the hotel. Is, mm-hmm. is but, Jack the one that's breaking down? Yes. It's not Wendy. He is. No. Jack is the one who clearly breaks down. He goes from a, a very clear-minded person to in the end when he is in the maze he is not speaking english he is just speaking gibberish yeah so that's how so, that's the slide all right that this says. I'll, I'll buy into that sure. okay <laughs> yeah but yeah any mind control themes here i think you know, no just it's yeah. just dumb i okay we uh we have our Holy cow, we're on our last one. Oh my gosh. Another well, theory. Well, our last official one. Our last official one, and then we've got a present for everybody who holds Yay! out. Okay. The last theory that we have here is that this is all about a dream. The whole thing is a dream. And I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of summarize these into little bits and then we can take them apart farther if you want. There is the idea that this whole thing is a dream had by Jack as he is suffering the DTs, detox, because he's an alcoholic who's dried out, Mm -hmm. and he's also suffering from writer's block. And so this whole thing is this weird, crazy dream in his head. Yeah, but I mean, they said in the movie that, uh, Shelley Duvall said at the beginning of the movie that he'd been on the wagon for like six months. Right. You don't have the DTs at six months out. No, that's true. But but he's also, I guess the DTs were the wrong wrong thing to call it, but he wants a drink. Oh, yeah. He's resisting, but the urge is still there the craving so that's what he's fighting and luckily there was a virtual drink ready for him mm-hmm. there was yeah and some of the stuff that i've seen that says that their support of this is you know the the fact that weird things only really seem to happen around jack the ghosts only appear around jack if indeed there were ghosts no, actually, well, no it's just, just i mean everybody saw ghosts in oh you're right in the very very end wendy saw the a couple of ghosts the in butler room. Or the not the butler, um, Grady. She saw Grady. Um, oh, and the the skeletons. She saw the skeletons she saw all in the, the room. All the corpses in the ballroom, and then she and then of course uh, Danny. Danny saw Danny the girls. Sees, he saw it all. Danny saw all kinds of stuff. He had yeah. a sneak peek. So everybody everybody saw ghosts and, and stuff like that. Remind me not to go to this place. What Timberline? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a great that's a great way to segue into our next bit of is this a dream? The part about Danny is that maybe the whole thing is actually in Danny's head. So it's Danny having a dream, and it's from his point of view, and it's all in his imagination. It's not really happening the way we are shown on screen. It happens. It's interesting as as we talk about uh, Jack, it being Jack's dream, it being Danny's dream. They talk about there's only one actual supernatural thing that happens in this movie, right? The pantry. It's yeah. Jack getting out of the pantry because he's locked in there by Wendy Actually, after he's knocked out. Yeah. But then Grady I, lets him out. Yeah. According, we that's what we're led to believe that's in what the movie. Right. But I actually do like the theory that is brought up in a lot of different places that it's actually Danny. 
Yeah, that Danny lets him lose because we don't right. see Danny. Right. We don't know where Danny is at that point. Right. He's because he's not anywhere. I mean, there, there's no documentation of him being anywhere, and I do like that theory a lot. And I also think that it it led, lends credence to it being Danny's dream. Or there's another version of it that it's all Danny's fault. Danny, with his shining, is actually causing all of the things that are happening. Well, that he and takes so over one's at... brain, right? Are you going to talk about that? That well, he takes yeah. over Wendy when she's when she's um, fighting Jack off. I don't. I, I haven't. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, there there was there actually was another supernatural thing mm. that happened. That was uh, a little bit earlier in the movie when he's playing with a bunch of little toy cars. And, and the and, ball rolls and, up. And the ball comes rolling up, and he happens to be right down the corridor from good old room 237. Right. Yeah. And I, I would ball, agree with that. Yeah. yeah so, there were, so there were two things that physically couldn't possibly have happened, and then they were cosmic where the ghosts took over. Of course, maybe Jack Nicholson was down the corridor, and he uh, rolled the ball at him. Because Jack game. did throw the ball. He did throw there, the ball. There are scenes well, and, of him playing. Yeah. And with, that brings up... The, the tennis ball. And that brings up the weird sense of space, right? That you don't totally know where everything is in relation to each other in this hotel that they live in. So it's possible, right? He's like throwing the ball. And if everything lines up the way your brain wants it to line up, he's throwing the ball, it hits a weird angle, and it just rolls down the hall to Danny. But you don't know that. Like, there's no way to know where no, it and, actually lines up. And but actually, when that happened, when he was playing with the toys... That was right about the same time that Jack Nicholson was was passed out asleep over his typewriter mm-hmm. in that room. He wasn't throwing the ball, and then he start, he starts having a hideous dream and starts screaming his sleep and everything. Right. And so and that's that all about happened at the same time. There's a lot of stu- there's a lot of weird stuff around that specific supernatural moment, right? Because that's also when the continuity gets weird. Of the hotel? Yeah. Of the layout of the hotel? Of even just the carpet, the physical carpet below Danny. Oh, because... Do you remember it, that bit? Because it flips? Yeah. it roll, the, the ball rolls up to him in this like kind of pathway in the carpeting that leads into the geometric shape that he's been playing in. And he stands up and uh, it's flipped. He's standing 180 degrees facing the other right. direction. Which is the weird. same thing actually happens when uh, Halloran is showing Wendy and Danny the pantries. Yeah. And they they go in the pantry one way and then when they walk out it it's a like... completely different area. Yeah. So But those things happen all the time. And those are big questions I think for me about the movie whatever theories I believe it's a dream, it's a you know, the Holocaust, whatever. They're big questions because it seems like, given the rest of Kubrick's filmology, fi- filmology? I guess that works. Filmology? 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 His catalog? Yeah, his catalog of films. Yes. That he was really big on details and continuity. And so for him to kind of overlook those things seems significant i think a lot of times but but there's also the fact of the sheer volume they shot for a year there's the sheer number of takes he then edits it all himself i see details disappearing but you want to talk about the sheer number of takes oh <laughs> which yeah, particular one do we want to go into the shelly duvall scene yes yeah, the, the fact that shelly duvall was admitted to the hospital like a couple of times during the filming because she was in a constant state of 
of um, exhaustion yeah. and mental. Yeah, she yeah. was under a lot out. of stress, apparently. Yeah. yeah. And that one 117 takes. 117 takes. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. must have taken a couple of days. Well, I have, uh, before we get into the final thing that we got for all of our listeners, I have one final thing that I want to throw out there that I am surprised never came up in any of the research and I've never read anywhere else. Sure. Do you remember Jack is in the uh, the Colorado room on his typewriter typing all work and no play makes, makes Jack, Jack a dull, dull boy? boy. Mm-hmm. That Kubrick wrote. You know that, right? No. no. No, he didn't. He didn't? He did not. I thought the he secretaries did. hated Kubrick because he made them type it up and he wouldn't let them Xerox it. So the secretaries That's actually so wrote it. Because there's all that behind the scenes footage of him typing away on that orange typewriter. Right, but he's typing on little itty bitty sheets. He it turns out he's rewriting the script, right? Right. Yeah. No, um our uh, our our I got that bit of information from an inside source, and it turns out that no, Kubrick didn't write any of that. So okay. that's that's Bupkus. Okay. Sorry. But, but all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy is thirty-three characters. I counted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we see Jack in the uh, the Colorado room, and he resets the carriage and he starts typing. If you listen, it's twenty six keystrokes before he resets the carriage again. Go a little farther. Wendy, when she first discovers what Jack has been typing and she's spinning through the pages. They show 26 different pages with that text on it. Is so it, what does that mean? Well, probably nothing, but as I'm a surprised question, latched onto But as it. a question, like under the heading, you know, this is all a dream. I've only ever heard it's Jack or it's Danny. I've never heard it's Wendy having a nightmare. Or it's Scatman or a Crothers. breakdown. Or a breakdown. Right? Her character in this movie is very um, bird-like in her mannerisms and her her actions and her attitude. She's very timid and scared and but I get and fluttery yeah, all the for time. me, you know, she even kind of says in the very beginning, as Jack is saying, "Hey, we're gonna go do this thing for our family." She's like, "Well, I don't really want to go do that thing." And so for it to be a nightmare of hers, of this is how it could turn out, the inconsistencies by and large happen when she's involved, right? Some. Most? Uh, Not all, though. But so like, okay, the other things that happen, right? Like, okay, so Jack cheats on her with an attractive lady who turns out to be like a bog monster. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Her son is like super injured by weird supernatural things. She has a a breakdown over Jack saying like, Hey, nothing's going on. The fact that it could just be a movie about her mental breakdown in isolation. That's compelling to me. Yeah. I know people, I know a couple people, honestly, currently. Who could have imagined something like that. I wouldn't be surprised if that's how they're experiencing life currently, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, you know, I, I, I always hate that, you know, whenever a movie or anything like that, always, in the end, the guy always just wakes up, you know. And yeah. I hate that crap. So yeah, I'm not, that's, so that's I'm, a terrible I'm not, ending. I'm not buying this crap at all. It's okay. a cheap way out. Now, nobody was dreaming. Okay. Can we give our gift now? We can give our gift. <gasps> Yay! At the last minute, we got a lucky break. 
there's a, a producer friend that we know who is involved in Hollywood. Yeah, Lucas. And, and he happens to know the guys, a couple of folks who were involved with filming of The Shining. Yeah, was... Like more than a little involved. It was, it was a last minute deal. Yeah. I mean, absolutely last I wasn't deal. even, I don't think, I was, actually, it was well, just I was, you. It was just me. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we got to talk to uh, Brian Cook. He was the assistant director on The Shining. He worked with Stanley on a lo- almost every one of his he's movies. He's credited on literally every single yeah. movie. Yeah. All I, 16 of them. And he, he saw Room 237. He didn't like it. Yeah. And, and <laughs> so we've, we've got, I, I was able to get an interview with him, and he's given us some great stuff and his impression and his thoughts on this. I'm going to tell you now, it was done by Skype. And because it was such a last-minute thing, audio is not the best. I stopped hearing the audio issues after a minute or two, yeah, but just, you probably will too. He's super interesting. He is. It's so interesting that that just doesn't become a problem. So without further ado, we're gonna. I'm going to talk to Brian, and then we'll come back to you. So it, it sounds like to me, and, and tell me if I'm wrong here, is that things weren't set in stone. I mean, it, it sounded like things were, I, you had so much going on that it was always a little bit flexible as as you worked through scenes and shots. And how much yeah, of that always, would you say? Oh, definitely. I mean, always with Stanley, you'd like the scene first, get all the uh, art direction set and the dressing. And then he'd bring the actors in to rehearse and rewrite the scene and sit down with them. That would take a day, send them away, learn the lines then come back, and then we carry on lighting, and then start shooting. Okay. So the whole process was like that with him. I mean, not on exteriors on Barry Lyndon, for instance, because it was so difficult in Ireland. Ireland's very difficult, you know, with the weather changing. I think probably, you know, we would have recast Ryan O'Neill when we closed down after six weeks on Barry Lyndon, uh, to be honest with you. I, he certainly thought about it, but if we hadn't had to go back to the south and reshoot all the exteriors... But anyway, you know, of course, that's why guys like Stanley like to shoot interiors. So they can control the light. They can control everything. Well, when you're I've, outside, you're in the lap of the gods, you know. Yeah, and, and I've, some of the stuff that I've read is, is that, you know, Stanley liked to take a lot of shots of the same scene. Oh, yeah. And sometimes what I've heard it described as excessive before, and I don't know... Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the, a lot of the final takes that we used weren't you know, take 16. But Jack got the message and, you know, he learned, you know, don't really wind up until, you know, he, don't put too much in early on with this. <laughs> it took him a little while, you know, but the first month, but uh, once we sorted his working hours and everything out, there was no problem with Jack. Yeah. You know, because, as I said, he didn't even have a stand-in. I mean, can you believe that? And But Stanley, you know, the crew used to stand in and then, of course, he'd bring in the actors to light properly. That's funny. So, uh, yeah, I mean, but that's the way it worked. I mean, no one else would work like that. But, I mean, it was a wonderful... Uh, it, it's such a holiday after working with Stanley when you go to work with other people because you don't get lumbered with all these other things to worry about. You just get on and do it automatically, you know? It doesn't get questioned. But, uh, you know, once you get used to it, I used to have a, spend a lot of time telling new people like, for instance, uh, we had two or three art directors we got rid of early on before Roy came back on um, Eyes Wide Shut. They used to say to me, Brian, but, you know, you've got to build the set. I said, we, I know all that. We've got people for 13 weeks going around London every night taking photographs of New York streets. I said, 
of course we aren't going to shoot. We did shoot for two nights, I think, on a street in London, a side street. I said, we'd be building all this eventually. I said, but you've got to go through this stuff with Stanley. You know, if he's told him at Warner Brothers, told Terry Samuel, but he'll, you know, shoot it all in London. It looks just like New York. And say, shit, they know shit the same as we do. You know? <laughs> they're not mad. I mean, you know, that's, that's, they know what the rules are with Stanley. I mean, they're all very well aware of that. These guys are smart. Yeah. I mean, those guys at Warner Brothers are all smart. John Galley, um, uh, Bob Daly, Terry Samuel, you know. Ted Ashley in the old days. Uh, they, they, you know, they're not mugs. These guys were very, very smart, successful people. Um, and they didn't interfere with him at all, you know. Yeah. You know, with it. But he had a winning track record. He made them money, so, over the years, you know. And, of course, he was an imposing person to be on the payroll. I mean, you know, he was a grade-A director. And studios have got to have that. And Robert Benton, who was a very good director and writer anyway on Billy Basket, although it was a flop, the film, and so was Stellar actually. But um, I certainly have worked on some flops over the years. Expensive ones. <laughs> There's been quite a few of those out there in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing when you think about it. But um, what else can I help you with in terms of? Well, uh, so I, you, actually, I, here's the the reason that we're looking about the conspiracy stuff. Yeah, I, that's I was gonna. That's where I was headed here. Is that I've read a lot of this stuff, and just through interviews and research with other people, I found things that are wrong with these. But what in general? I mean, what is your take on all of this conspiracy oh, stuff? Stanley, like all these great guys, he'll move continuity things out because if it's something in the frame, no matter how continuity is, if it, if it affects the frame being what he thought was a perfect frame, it would go, and then it would come back in on the next thing. All that sort of stuff. But, I mean, I went to see that awful film with my son and his uh, partner, business partner, and we went to... Room 237? Oh, what a load of <laughs> We went to see it, and we left halfway through, or we retired to the bar halfway through. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. How they got away with making that? And getting it distributed is amazing. It's <laughs> rubbish. Absolute rubbish. But, um, of course, there are many different things that happen over... When you think we've shot for nearly a year on The Shining, and even the little boy, I mean, if you want to figure out things, there's a million mistakes because you go backwards and forwards to the scenes months later. And also the actors change. I mean, the little boy changes in look, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, all those sort of things. So there's certainly no conspiracy that I know with Stanley. I mean, even worse, the ones about the um, uh, the moon landings and all that. <laughs> sort of thing. I mean, where do these guys come from? <laughs> it's unbelievable. What a lot of morons. <sighs> there are so many fruitcakes out there in this world. It, it's unbelievable. Yeah, uh, the the moon know. landing is a, is a pretty big stretch to me. Oh, it's a absolute joke but he was a he was a very very good director stanley um, you know a lot of people used to say they didn't think he was good with actors i thought he was very good with actors he gave them every opportunity to do whatever they wanted and uh, i know for a fact because i've worked three times with jack i've been lucky enough to work with him three times two of them with sean penn directing who's excellent director by the way i just did a film with him last year which i think is going to be a very good film be called the last face uh, Charlie Theron and Javier Bardem, which we shot in Africa. It's all, all set in the refugee camps in Sierra Leone, uh, Sudan, and um, 
a very interesting, and a, a little bit in the United Nations in Switzerland, we shot uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia. So a, a big film. I think it'll be a very good movie. He's a good director. Um, but uh, no, all those conspiracy theories, absolute crap. I mean, old Stanley used to say to me when we didn't know what we were doing, he said, well, we'll, we'll let the French film critics tell us what this was supposed to be about. <laughs> Standard uh, line on those sort of things. <laughs> very, very, very funny man. I mean, um, you know, very humorous guy, Stanley. Very dry, and um, had a very good um, sense of dry sense of humor about people in the film industry. That's for sure. I love talking to that guy. Yeah, I'm jealous. I'm so jealous. Guy. Interesting, but I, I you love... know the word, the hard part is. It was an hour and a half conversation. Like we talked for so long mm -hmm. about so much. He gave me, he's the one who told me about the, the typewriter or yeah. the, the pages. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's how I know. Well, he also had that to say about the continuity thing. He said, you know, that's not a conspiracy. It's just that sometimes he would look at it and say, you know, that chair just does, doesn't, it really kind of, it kind of changes the balance of the scene. So let's pull that chair out. Then the next scene, the chair is back in. You know, yeah, I know continuity was, was not as important as the shot. Yeah. yeah. So it's, and uh, that's, it was really nice of him to actually make the time. Oh, you know, yeah. I was, uh, I dropped yeah. everything and ran. So of course. Big no, was, uh, thank so, you yeah. to Brian but, yeah, and everybody nice. who helped us get that. That was fantastic. I think, you know, Steve said, listen to this interview so that we can talk about it a little bit. And I just responded with, how did you get that interview? <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. But I think he makes some really, really good points. Fantastic. Because, points. in fairness, right? Like you want to believe there's so much lore around Stanley Kubrick, right? So people say like, oh, he had an IQ of 200, which is bunk. I mean, he, maybe he did. He seemed like he was like a really, really smart guy. But... I don't know if anybody has an IQ of 200. Right. But I think that to to make claims that. The Shining of all of his movies had all of this subtext. I think he wanted to make a horror movie. Well, he did. Yeah, and he I absolutely think, did. And yeah, like he, you know, like it says in the interview, like Jack Nicholson realized real quick, like, hey, maybe you don't give 100% on your first take. Like, <laughs> it's never going to be perfect. And I think that that explains so much of the movie. Like, especially since you're working with an actual five-year-old, you, when you get into the continuity of, oh, the carpet was different. Like, well, he was a five-year-old. Like, they took it from different angles. What they they came back the next day, and they didn't check their, their, their Polaroids to know what the scene exactly was set yeah. up as. I mean, all these things happen. Yeah. Of course, yeah. So my personal take is that Stanley was a great director and Absolutely. a great filmmaker. And he had a fantastic eye for detail for what should and shouldn't be in the shot. His use of one-point perspective is... Uh, I've never seen anybody else pull it off like he does. He was great at what he did. Yeah. Was he making all of these overt or not so, or, or not overt things i i don't i don't think so i think that the, he left so much up open to interpretation on purpose not knowing yeah. that people were going to go nuts and it drove him crazy cuz there there are statements from him saying some whack job makes something up but then it sticks 
and it won't go away. Yeah. And I can't, I can't uh-huh. say enough that it's not right. Yeah. I so know. It, 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 the genie got out of the bottle yeah. now, much it, more than I think he intended. Yeah, as, as Deb and I had both said repeatedly, if he'd wanted to make a movie about the Indians <laughs> or the Holocaust <laughs> or, you know, whatever, he would have just done it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was, you know, it was, you know, that big question mark on all of his movies. Sure. But he made movies about what he wanted to make movies about. And sometimes you just have to set a sense of place where, like, a kid happens to wear a Goodwill sweater of Apollo 11. or yeah. Things know. that a boy right. of that age at that time would right. wear is what he was looking for. You know, back in those days, you know, the space program was still a big thing for mm-hmm. kids. When I was a kid, uh, I, you know, I was, I was all nuts about the space program. I thought it was really awesome. You yeah. still are. You got that helmet that we have to make it's you weird. take off yeah, before yeah, we record. Because we can't hear you. No, I I think I, I don't know. I think it's it's fair to say that you know there were just a lot of takes that happened with this movie, and yeah, it's not a whole lot deeper than it should have been. I I mm-hmm. would I would agree wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, everybody, we are going to go ahead and put a bow on this one. Finally. Finally. This is a longer one than I realized it was going to be. We will have links and this episode, of course, as always, on our website, which is thinkingsidewayspodcast.com. And you can stream the show from there or download it. A lot of folks use iTunes and a lot of folks stream through other services. If you're on iTunes, do take the time to leave a a rating and a comment. Uh, We have been moving up the charts, which is absolutely great. We're really enjoying that. We are on a couple of places for social media. We're going to be on Twitter. We're gonna be. We are on Twitter. We are. We are on Twitter, and we are at Thinking Sideways without the G in the middle. We do tweet on a sort of regular, semi, maybe happened basis. I'm tweeting right now. Ooh. Are we on Facebook? Uh, we are on Facebook. We have the Facebook group and the Facebook page, both right. of which are a lot of fun. And if you have any thoughts about what we've talked about or the things that we've missed, and I apologize, this episode is long already, and there is so much lore and little facts and details that we, we had to cut, we couldn't bring in. Yeah, so but be aware just... that we didn't not know a lot of these Kubrick things. It just takes a lot of time to talk about them. Yeah, and then, you know, we have that interview who that, like, yeah. basically tells but, everything. Yep, but if you have, if you've got something great to share about Kubrick, and you want to, you can send us an email at thinkingsidewayspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, apologize to folks in advance because I know that we've been okay about it, but uh, there's a big event that is coming that is going to be around the time that this episode drops, so we might be a little bit delinquent. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. It it took all of us away. (laughs) Uh, And last but certainly not least, if you like what we do here at the show and you're enjoying it, uh, do consider helping support the show to to put out more episodes like this. We're on Patreon, so it's patreon.com. Slash thinking sideways, patreon.com. Yeah. Yeah. Slash thinking sideways. You can go there. You can set an amount that you would like to donate to the show per episode, completely voluntary. Absolutely voluntary. You know, if you decide you don't want to do it anymore, you can quit or it's just not your bag. 
great. Yeah, yeah. We're going to keep doing this, but we do appreciate all of that help. Yeah, no, no pressure because you know I, I certainly don't hit the tip jar at every blog that I go to. So yeah, you know, no, we yeah. try. I, I know yeah. I try, but it's hard because yeah. there are so many out there. We understand that there are. Yeah, that uh, I think that's enough. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go ahead and sign off, and we will talk to you next week. Oh, bye, guys. Uh, yeah, ta ta. Oh, hey, hey, guys. What's up? So well, we, we actually didn't leave yet. Uh, it, it Listen, there was so much great audio in our, our in my conversation with Brian that I wanted to share a little bit more of it with you. It didn't fit in the, the path of the, the podcast in terms of where we were in the story and in the theories. But this is great stuff about the things that he did. And so we're going to bring that to you right now. And so much bleeping, you guys. I'm so sorry. Yeah, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's a little there's bit of bleeping. A good, there's a good number of bleeps yeah. there. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if we didn't edit our show, this is what it would sound like, too. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah I'm not putting Brian down because I certainly say those words, too. Absolutely. Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, yeah. it absolutely happens. Yeah. Enjoy, you guys. Okay, yeah. goodbye for reals. Yeah, we mean it this time. But any uh, the, uh, that conspiracy stuff, I mean, it's just nonsense. That's all you can say about it. To be yeah. honest, it's hard to sort of make a program on it because you, you know it's difficult. I don't know quite how you do it. Just think you look at all the things and say, "Well, that, this is not true." Well, that's that's kind of what we do: is we find what we can to pull apart, and then we just give everything else and say, "This is what they say." Yeah, and um, you know, I can assure you that none of that ever came into play. I mean, you 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 could you could feel from what I've been talking to you about. The tiny, minutia, detail, trivia sh- that we used to play with on everything. You yeah. know, everything, no matter what you ordered, you know, Stanley would want to know. And, and you know, Stanley used to print the, pad, the p- p- payroll printed out every week. He'd look at the petty cash, the whole everything. I mean, you know, you didn't know how Stanley had time to do all this sh- And even think about directing the film. That was the last thing that came to mind. <laughs> Get around to doing it, you know. But you get used to it, and you get used to working his way, and um, he is very loyal. And you find all these, what I call big, good directors. You look at the credits over the years. Same old cameramen, same old production designers, same old editors, same old assistant directors. When they get somebody who they can also get on with, because if you're working with someone like Stanley... I mean, I was there for two and a half years on the last picture. That's a long time. Yeah. Well, we shot for a year and a half, maybe, or something. (laughs) With a lot of stops. But, I mean, we shot for nearly 300 days. Um, You know, you you need to have people that you can get on with. I mean, it's not... um, And I must say, you know, in fairness, someone like Tom, I mean, he was incredible on the last film, I thought. I mean, he's a very easy guy to get on with and was... um, of course, I used to say to him, I can't understand. you better get a new agent. I mean, you're here for 18 months. I can't believe you've got an open-ended deal. You must should have talked to Jack. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> was. Uh, you know, he used to keep coming to me and saying, Brian, I've got three other films to make. I said, Jeff, we haven't even started. I said, don't worry about can you see the light at the end of the tunnel. I said, you haven't even left the hotel to go to the station to get on the train yet. Don't even find a tunnel. I mean, nice guy, though. I got on very well with Stanley. I I remember only two occasions in 18 months when he um, lost his rag a bit. And that was only during rehearsals when there was no one there. I had to be outside the door 
where I used to be when the rehearsal was just with two or three actors and Stanley. And he'd come straight back after five minutes and apologize, you know. Yeah, nice guy. I liked him very much. And I've worked with Nicole quite a bit, so, you know, I knew them very well, really. Yeah. So, um, so that, that, they were fine. Um, strange movie, strange choice of movie. I was very surprised uh, when I read the script that that's what we were going to make. Because really, Stanley wanted to do AI. You know, that's what he planned on doing. But I think the studio were a little... <clears throat> who knows whether it's true or not. My guess was that they were very... You know, it would have been a very, very expensive film. Yeah. With Stanley doing it. It would have been a very different film to Spielberg's efforts on it. Um, would have been a very different film. But he'd spent a lot of, a lot of time preparing it, you know? Um... I think they wanted him to make a smaller film, and I think the idea was that Warner's were going to split it with Steven Spielberg in terms of financing it. You know, yeah, Stanley. Yeah. that was the idea. But I mean, there's no such thing as making a small film with Stanley. You know, yeah. they, that word doesn't exist. And it's very difficult for these sort of guys because you've got to try and do something better than you've done before. It was the same problem for David Lean. You know, my father did six films with David Lean. Where are you based? Uh, we're based out of Portland, Oregon. Oh, right. Well, of course, you're up to the Overlook Hotel. That's yeah. Where... Yeah, we, uh, I have not been, but I know Joe has been to the Timberline, one of the other co-hosts. Sure, of course. But, yeah, yeah. we so a lot of that footage, uh, it's very familiar. Yeah, of course, I'm sure. And, of course, the opening sequence, which I got Greg to do in the end, was in uh, Heaven's Gate country, of course, where we were in um, Glacier National Park. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, that, he did a great job for us, Greg, you know. They were, he's a top man, very good. Um, I'd worked with him in Greece many years ago on a film with James Coburn called The Sky Riders, and they were really terrific, Jim, and, uh, and he got killed, unfortunately, on a scouting trip for a commercial. Uh, that chopper came down, oh. uh, Jim Freeman. Um, yeah, very sad. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, he's a good guy, Greg McGilvey. He did a great job on that opening sequence. Yeah, it's Never fantastic. Was. Yeah, never worked by car. We spent three months there f***ing around doing it from front to back of camera cars, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no good at all. I knew that would be a f*** up. But, you know, usual stuff for Stanley. You start, you know, on the cheap and then have to spend the money. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he wasn't worried about the schedule. Stanley was more interested in the weekly running costs. He would keep those as low as possible. Yeah. Small crew, apart from when you needed them, you know... To, to keep costs down, because he knew he was going to shoot for a long time, you know, and, um, but he certainly was a, a unique guy, no question about that, I mean, a, a true visionary, my father, who did a lot of stuff, uh, six films with David Lean, and also worked with Stanley, said that, for him, David Lean was the best storyteller of all of the big directors, and he'd worked with Houston a lot, and, he thought David Lean was the best storyteller of a major novel bringing it to the screen and that Stanley was more of a visionary who had terrific vision for movies, you know? And I think that was a pretty good uh, description of it from the old man, actually, because I think that's the case. I mean, David Lean was a wonderful director of uh, a man. And, of course, all these guys, these big guys, they can work on a big canvas, which a lot of them can't do. I mean, I did a lot of films with Michael Cimino. I know not that successfully in the last few years from Heaven's Gate, but Michael could work on a big canvas. You know, uh, Coppola can, Ridley can, 
Michael Mann, uh, Cameron, you know, these guys can. Many, many directors can't. They're very good at, on a smaller canvas. Um, and, and make some very good films. Of course they do. I mean, excellent films. But, you know, that big canvas thing is, is something you've either got or you haven't, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's another world out there doing that. And also, you know, the costs that go with that on those sort of movies, they all escalate. I mean, particularly period films. You know, I, I've never understood anyone who ever thinks that they can make a big period film <clears throat> for the money that start, you start out with. It's just an impossibility. I mean, you only ever get the leading ladies on a period film for six, seven hours a day, maximum. Because, you know, time you get them there in the morning, you get them ready, a couple of hours at least getting them ready, dressing them, lunch, take all the gear off, get them back after lunch, remake up, the travel time, all the bull****. You know, I think, you know, you, uh, my experience is you get six, seven hours working day off of a leading lady on a big period movie. Well, I mean, everyone schedules these things for the 12-hour day. Well, it, it, it's non-existent. <laughs> how, how no one's ever worked that out in the studio I, I, it amazes me every time we talk about it <laughs> yeah. it's very uh, that's hilarious but of course the thing is uh, you know once you start on those big films it's like a, a, a great big tanker at sea and stopping them and turning them around is a whole different ball game you know yeah it doesn't happen I mean you just got to hope that you know you get lucky I heard a phrase the other day, trying to turn the Titanic with a canoe paddle. And yeah. that sounds like that's appropriate. I've been on a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 